Today on The Soul of Life, I give a crash course on medicine for the mind with Dr. Joel Bernanke, a Columbia and Cornell trained psychiatrist. We cover the power, potential, and pitfalls of psychopharmacology and its alternatives. We try to alleviate some of the common fears and expose misconceptions that stop people from treating their mind like any other part of their body. And we especially talk about treatment for depression, anxiety, and one of Dr. Bernanke's research areas, ADHD. Physical symptoms are probably a neglected component of depression. You know, there's this strong, you know, what I think generically we might call the mind-body connection, but lots of people with depression and anxiety have significant physical symptoms. As a clinical psychotherapist that's treated depression and anxiety for over the last 20 years, I was the last person I'd expect to hold on to mistrust and fear about taking medicine for the mind. It wasn't until my own body started having strange neurological symptoms, and I'd spent about a year exhausting fringe medical theories to avoid admitting that I was suffering from good old depression. And I embraced medicine for the mind and experienced a rapid remission. I'm still on a journey with my symptoms, but turning to medicine unlocked a whole world of insight into my condition that otherwise would have been unexplored. Dr. Bernanke and I will hopefully give you a glimpse into how to navigate behavioral medicine to help you get help for you or your loved ones. This is an especially important topic during the pandemic. Recently, the Journal of American Medical Association published results from a survey that found prevalence of depression symptoms in the U.S. increased more than threefold during the COVID-19 pandemic, from around 8% of the population before COVID-19 to about 28% during COVID-19. Maybe you have problems concentrating, difficulties, motivation. Um, it might be just really hard for you to make lifestyle changes. It might be really hard for you to engage meaningfully in a psychotherapy. Um, and the evidence supports that that's where we see really profound benefits of medication. Dr. Bernanke and I aren't pill pushers. In fact, we talk about how to assess the cost-benefit analysis and other more simple interventions that should be exhausted before turning to medicine. We're medical doctors first, we're humans second, and we're psychiatrists third. You know, if someone comes in the door and says, look, I'm having this crushing chest pain, we don't say, tell me about your mother. We say, go to the emergency room and make sure you're not having a heart attack. Lifestyle changes are proven to prevent or help us out of anxiety or depressive disorders. We know this. Things like sleep hygiene, getting eight continuous hours minimum per night, cutting out alcohol, getting regular cardio exercise, opening yourself up to friendships, learning new skills. These are the things that really help. Swapping anxiety-provoking forms of relaxation, like cable news, with proven practices like mindfulness and yoga. These things work. They're proven to be cornerstones of a healthy mind. But in my experience, people, men especially, and I've been one of them, think that getting help is for those people, those poor souls who lack the gumption to find their own way. Or I hear things like, I'm not gonna let Big Pharma trick me into thinking I need some pill to be happy. Well, today's episode is for those doubts and questions. For those of you seeking answers to make your life better, and for you and your family's future to be a little brighter. Today, we're gonna sort through some of these normal fears incorrect misinformation about mental health treatment. People subject um, psychiatric medications to a bit of a double standard, you know? So like people get prescribed a blood pressure medication, 
it doesn't quite work. They have to try a different one. That one doesn't quite work. They wind up on two blood pressure medications. Their blood pressure comes down a little bit, but they still have a problem. Maybe they still have a stroke or they still have a heart attack. And nobody says, oh, well, we shouldn't believe in cardiology. We talk about whether genetic testing is the future for a more precise form of psychiatric treatment. I have strong feelings on this one. So I helped host uh, American Psychiatric Association debate about the clinical utility of genetic testing in psychiatry. And in addition to other shop talk between Joel and I, like medication side effects, the debate about mental health and regular marijuana use, self-medicating with alcohol, we talk about ADHD treatments, the safety of pediatric psychiatry, and something pretty interesting that I've run into myself called California rocket fuel. And it was used in this really big community study called STAR-D. I think people have thought for its effectiveness and also for the diverse ways that it affects brains functioning have dubbed it uh, California rocket fuel. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 16, Medicine for the Mind. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. I'm really excited to have Dr. Joel Bernanke here. He's a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist in Brooklyn Heights, New York. He's Columbia and Cornell trained, board certified, and he works with children, adolescents, and adults. And I'm really excited to talk with him today about uh, the idea of psychopharmacology, uh, mood disorders, ADHD, the whole world of taking medicine for your mind. So welcome, Joel. Glad to have you. No, thank you, Keith. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. You know, uh, I've known you for a little while and and shared with you some of my journey that I've shared with uh, the listeners of this podcast about how for me taking uh, medication for my mind and for my health was was new to me, even though I've been a clinician for 20 years treating people with depression. I shared with you how at one point my body um, started breaking down in a certain way and I had these neurological symptoms. So I'm excited to talk to you about and, and make available this conversation for others who may be going through something similar to talk about, you know, how it really works. How does, how do medicines, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines actually work, or at least what we know about them and excited to talk about that and also talk about your, your work with children. That's another important topic to me. And I think to many people out there. So um, I guess I'd start out with, with asking about like how common, you think it is, you know, I, I shared with you that my story is related to what, what we could just call sort of burnout. Um, and I think people use that term without really wanting to use the term depression. So what's your experience as a psychiatrist um, that treats depression for a living, right? Um, how often do people try to dance around this word depression? Oh, I think the answer is a lot. 
Um, and I think that you're, you're pointing out a, a ongoing controversy in the area of, of burnout studies as to whether depression and burnout are really two different things or not. Um, there's definitely a, a, a burnout syndrome that seems to ha have a lot in common with depression. And there's a burnout scale that seems to assess a lot of the similar symptoms. But I think um, a lot of people in the field um, feel that burnout, although similar, is distinct from depression, uh, but that it's hard to get good evidence to sort of prove that uh, one way or the other. So you raise an interesting point. Even the use of the term burnout is maybe one of those examples of people dancing around um, what might just otherwise be called depression. Right. Um, yeah. And the, the other way that that comes up is just the different ways that people express feeling depressed. Um, and physical symptoms are probably a neglected component of depression. You know, there's this strong, you know, what I think generically we might call the mind-body connection, but lots of people with depression and anxiety have significant physical symptoms. Um, you know, low energy or fatigue are included right in some of the definition uh, of the of depression and and muscle tension is included in the definition of generalized anxiety disorder. But I think we know that there's a lot, a lot more than that. Than, right. Um, right. And, and especially across like cultures, um, mm. you know, not just uh, racial ethnic groups, but also across cultures, you know, I think we even have some stereotypes about how men express things versus how women express things. But just the notion that individuals might express their psychic pain through, through their body. Uh, you know, so I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a That's rambling great. answer, but no, it's, it's really helpful. And, I, and I'm particularly tuned into the idea that, um, you know, that the, that the symptoms in the body, the somatic symptoms and, and what we would call somatization of symptoms, right. That's like, like the express, the expression of symptoms through somatic experience, um, that that is a key, a key part of depression. I think, you think when I, I know I don't, I didn't like to think of myself as depressed. I, and I still kind of use the, I find myself self kind of, if I share it with people, I kind of say it's a form of depression or it's a subtype or it's a, I even like, like to use the word subclinical depression. I throw that in there. Like as if, as if it like doesn't quite meet the, you know, the standard classical, like crying every day, can't get out of bed and, un, you know, these sort of moods that just sweep over. Cause that's not how I experienced it. And so I find myself wanting to put these qualifiers on it to say, well, it's a form of depression. It's some sort of physical manifestation of, you know, but the point for me was like, at a certain point, I just needed to get results. Like I was not getting results. I was seeing a debilitating effect in my ability to concentrate, um, you know, find words, common words. And it was scary. And then when the neurologist started telling me, hey, you're losing sensation in your hands and feet. And I'm, I, want, I wonder, you know, you know, yeah, like I wonder if that's, if that's not a common subset of depression, right? I want people to make, make sure they can distinguish that. You know, as far as I know, losing sensation is not common, but cognitive changes are extremely common um, and are, are perhaps another neglected area where we often overlook the residual um, cognitive symptoms of depression and specifically what you're talking about, you know, reduced concentration is again, one of the diagnostic criteria for depression. Um, but I think that there's a lot of cognitive symptoms related to all kinds of psychiatric disorders that 
we often don't see as either the core of the disorder or we don't uh, do our best to identify and treat when the other perhaps more visible symptoms are are improving. So what you're talking about with like word finding, concentration, uh, fatigue, and general physical symptoms, often most commonly aches, pains, um, stomach problems, um, you know, th- those are all, I think, for a lot of people, a big part of, of mood mood problems. Right. And, and insomnia too, right? That's, that's And insomnia. Yeah. Hugely yeah. common. Um, and this categorical, yes, you have it. No, you don't cut off is really challenging. Um, I think you're right. People are confused. I know with my clinical experience, people, it, it, you know, I, there's resistance, right? And I, I um, certainly was one of those patients where I was like, no, it's not that. Like, like, take that checklist somewhere else. Like, I went through the checklist with myself and with colleagues and with my own therapist. No, it's not depression. But then if you start to um, take off the, what maybe the rigidity of these, like you said, categories and begin to look at like, the the constellation of symptoms, um, then you know that's where the crosshairs kind of settled very neatly for me. On oh, yeah, uh, uh, I could embrace treatment for depression and probably get the results. So whatever you want to call it, okay. Yeah, and as a clinician, you know, you're exact, I try to meet patients where they're at, and you know, I, I try to use whatever language feels right to them, and. Um, I try to explain to them, uh, you know, why I think what I think and what I think is is sort of worth trying. But fundamentally, psychiatry remains a pretty mysterious field. Yeah. And we have a lot of data about things that work for these well-defined conditions. But we also have a wealth of, of data um, that's not randomized controlled trials to support the use of medications and, you know, these unusual, less common presentations or people who, you know, are maybe on the borderline between, um, you know, sort of what might be normal sadness versus uh, overt depression. Um, And so that's where I think clinical experience and judgment and collaboration with a a patient come into play and just sort of exploring together, like, okay, what does the patient think this is? How do they define it? What do they think is worth trying? And how do we have a conversation to help them move in a direction that we think is is likely to be beneficial to them? Right, right. Um, And and I I went down a path that I wouldn't recommend other people doing. You know, I I got so many other recommendations from other doctors, non-psychiatrists. I, you know, psychiatrist was last on my list. Neurologist was next to last on my list. Um, but all of, you know, I went to the endocrinologists, I went to the cardiologists, I went to the, you know, you name it. And, and I won't get into it all here, but to try to rule out other things. Now, it's typical, right, for you to recommend that somebody gets a physical. Like the first, like we, I want people to understand that I'm not, and I, I don't think you are either. Like um, we, as clinicians, we do not, you know, the, the old cliche that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Like, like we're, I don't think we're happy to give, like we're not, like it doesn't give us delight somehow to give people medication or to take med- Like, it's not like we're pro medication. It's like, if that's what fits, then we're here to help and provide that. Yeah. Now I, I I'm going to butcher this quote, but I had a supervisor in residency who had said, said something like we're medical doctors first, we're human second and we're psychiatrists third. 
And I think he was getting at exactly what you're getting at. You know, if someone comes in the door and says, look, I'm having this crushing chest pain, we don't say, tell me about your mother. (laughs) We say, go to the emergency room and make sure you're not having a heart attack. And, uh, you know, the overlap between physical and mental illness is so profound in a couple of different ways. One way is that we just know that people who have physical illness are at higher risk of mental illness, maybe even just entirely separately, no, no overlap in what causes physical illness and mental illness. But I think what we're learning more and more is that there are actual overlaps in what causes some physical and some mental illnesses. And I think the, the most recent example of this is autoimmune encephalitis, which is increasingly discovered to be um, a rheumatologic condition that leads to uh, everything from mood symptoms to psychotic symptoms and behavior changes. And we're learning more and more about this condition every year, discovering more and more autoantibodies. Even before that, we knew that thyroid conditions could also produce, um, you know, prominent mood symptoms, whether it was mania or psychosis. Um, and so I think this, this overlap between the mental and physical is, is something that we don't appreciate yet. And we're trying to understand more and more. Um, but I think as part of an evidence-based and common sense practice, when we meet people who are having new onset mood and anxiety symptoms, we often think about physical exam. Do they have physical symptoms? Even if they don't have clear-cut physical symptoms as well, we often do screening lab work just to make sure they don't have common physical ailments that can manifest with psychiatric symptoms. Like you were saying, you know, like, do they have a thyroid problem? Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, do they actually have a cardiac, do they have a heart arrhythmia that is contributing to those palpitations that they're interpreting as panic? Right. Um, and those are two examples that come to mind. But even the example of, are they using substances? Or yeah. Could that be contributing? And yeah. seeing that as something that needs to be diagnosed and assessed as, yeah. as well. So and I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in the segment here, to, um, self-medicating, because that's, that's, that's a huge overlap in something that's I'll, I'll share a funny part of my story as it relates to alcohol, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to cover kind of, I, I did want people to hear that, that, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not coming out of this experience, like somehow thinking like everybody in the world should be taking Zoloft or Prozac or whatever. I really don't believe that. I, I just simply want to raise the bar for people's consideration of how, what are they willing to do to get results in their life? And, and to, to not edit out the possibility of psychoactive medication being a part of getting, of, of enhancing their performance, plain and simple. <laughs> like I, I kind of stepped back, Joel, from this experience and said to myself, like, and I, and I understand for lots of reasons why this can't be done, but I, you know, ethically and whatnot, but I, I like, I kind of wonder why drug companies don't market <laughs> these as performance enhancing. And I wonder if they've got it all wrong. Like in some sense, and to me, I'm speaking really specifically to this subset of the population that, you know, obviously we, we think of uh, the world as like somehow like ourselves. So I'm just being, you know, projecting my own, my own self onto this. But, you know, that, you know, people who are, are driven to achieve type A sort of folks, um, ambitious, entrepreneurial, um, people who come from certain cultures, certainly. And I had, you know, the doctor that actually t- kind of really woke me up, actually, and the oncologist, I interviewed him and he said, you know, let me tell you a story. Like my family, he's from Korea. He told this story about, you know, if, if my parents thought we should be like right here, then they would make us go like right here. (laughs) And so Mm. like you mentioned culture and, um, how there can be sometimes really simple explanations and behavioral things, things that we can work with in therapy that are causing, 
either the panic, anxiety, or depression symptoms. And those are the first things we look for. It's like, are there simple things that you can do? Like, okay, you're watching CNN or Fox News all day. Like, well, okay, maybe, you know, well, you, you could take antidepressants so that you can tolerate that uh, news uh, <laughs> dump. Or, yeah. or, or maybe consider like uh, not doing it. Or, okay, you're drinking in excess. You know, alcohol is a depressant. So maybe we could consider. So usually there's a triage effect, right? Where we are looking at like, well, let's do the simplest thing first. Let's get off of the alcohol or let's deal with this. And then, you know, if some of those things are not clicking for the person, then of course, then we're going to recommend some medication. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I see triage and I, I do some triage in that regard too, because somebody comes in and, and they're in massive debt and they have no plan to get out of it and they're worried about it. Zoloft probably is not going to do the trick. Um, Or if they're in a terrible relationship or even an abusive relationship, or they have housing insecurity or they're hungry or all of these things, you know, then again, Zoloft is probably not the answer. So I think I learned from my training where I worked with people from all walks of life and all backgrounds that you're exactly right. You know, we got to start with some of the most basic things and offer people some support in figuring out like life stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, as you come up the, the list from most severe housing and safety, you get into exactly where you're getting into, which is, you know, how much, how, how much pandemic news are you watching? Um, and are there diet? Things, yeah, exactly. Um, and so that, that, that fits in well, I think with the, the research on the benefits of these medications, because I think there's a pretty good, um, meta-analysis that suggests that medications work well, uh, the sicker you, you are. Um, and so for more mild symptoms, you're exactly, there's actually a huge evidence base that supports everything from mindfulness to exercise. Um, I'm less familiar with dietary changes, but I think some people would advocate for that as well. Um, all kinds of psychotherapies. It doesn't even matter too much what kind of psychotherapy for mild symptoms. And then as your symptoms get more significant, then there's more concrete evidence that specific treatments are more helpful. And so then you get more into evidence-based psychotherapies, like cognitive behavioral therapy. But as you get worse and worse into that severe range, as you pointed out, like maybe you have problems concentrating, difficulties, motivation. Um, it might be just really hard for you to make lifestyle changes. It might be really hard for you to engage meaningfully in a psychotherapy. Um, and the evidence supports that that's where we see really profound benefits of medication. So yeah, medication. Yep. So for me, there's this balancing act of um, working with patients to understand what they're interested in and also how strongly I might recommend something based on the circumstances that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes to me mildly depressed, I might say, great, we've got this huge range of options. What are you thinking? Right. If someone comes to me seriously depressed, suicidal, et cetera, then I might say, look, we, we've really got to do a couple of key things here because these are the things that are proven to have serious benefits and medication should be on this short list of things that we right. discuss because right. of its, you know, the severity of the situation. Yeah. N- n- uh, not, not messing around at that point and just, and just telling yeah. it straight, like this is what can get the results. Exactly. Um, but what's interesting, I think is, you know, Again, not this high randomized control trial stuff, but maybe you've heard of the book Listening to Prozac. Yeah, Peter Kramer. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. He has two that I've read. The first was listening to Prozac. I'm forgetting the name of the second one. But his story in listening to Prozac was that there are a lot of these people who don't have severe psychiatric disorder. They, they're actually doing pretty well in their lives, but they are tense or rigid or have some other difficulties. Uh, they would tend to worry. And angry. in his practice, yeah, they're angry. They're irritable. And in his practice, he found that offering some of those folks medication actually was really still life-changing for them, even though they didn't have these traditional severe depressive disorders. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I think is interesting about this conversation and what you're getting at is like the potential role for medication across the spectrum of difficulties. And yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Across what I would say, like a a spectrum of subclinical difficulties, right? Things that might not meet the criteria and you might not meet all those checkboxes. And in my you know, my, uh, I guess my mission that I'm on the, the soapbox that I've built here is like telling people, look, um, why would you want to wait until you t- are checking all those damn boxes? Like you're, you can kind of see yourself heading for the edge. <laughs> like there's so much time and, and I just want to advocate for people to use the time that they have and, and, and avail themselves of help, um, no matter what it is and not judge what it is and just see if it gets results. Like I'm just open to, to seeing what works. And I think that's, that's the lens we should use. Obviously research plays a part in that too, because, you know, good research is, you know, should be focused on, you know, does this actually work? Not am I trying to prove that this drug uh, is, is, is good or bad so that people will buy it or not. You know, I think we should be curious about things that don't work too and, and stay open. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to kind of what, a pra- what practically people might expect. Cause I want this to sort of be an inside out sort of um, uh, conversation that some people may not uh, get to have with a psychiatrist, right? Like, to understand like what it's really like to talk to a psychiatrist, people who've not had experience with it, people who have maybe the HBO experience of it and maybe this prejudice against like how it might be. How often would you say, because for me, my experience, Joel, was, you know, I was lucky. I, I was working with a colleague that was prescribing and treating me. Um, and so I had a close relationship with this person in, in that, uh, you know, I was able to text or call and got a quick response. That's not everyone's experience. And I know managed care sometimes, you know, certainly you, you may, you're one of, you know, sometimes, I don't know, 50, 60 people that this psychiatrist might be see, you know, working with. So um, what should people expect in the first month? Because it's especially important, I found, to, to pay close attention the first month. It can be bumpy getting onto some of these medications, trial and error a little bit with dose and with type of medicine and then side effects, which we'll get into. So what, what should people expect? Yeah, so you brought up an, a number of, of useful points. So so one I wanted to talk about is the process of being open to a medication. You, you hit the nail on the head. So, you know, there's this anti-psychiatry movement. There's a lot of attempts to take down medication. And it, what I think surprises me every time is that to, to, uh, the use of medication stands up to rigorous testing every time in psychiatry. Um, And so that means that when you look at thousands of trials, tens of thousands of patients, integrate that all into a single analysis, uh, you you continue to find that these medications have benefits for depression, for anxiety, for bipolar disorder, et cetera. Um, And sometimes those, the size of the effect, you know, how beneficial these medications can be actually outshines a lot of the medications we use uh, in other areas uh, of medicine, you know? So I think that people subject um, psychiatric medications to a bit of a double standard, you know, so like people get prescribed a blood pressure medication, 
It doesn't quite work. They have to try a different one. That one doesn't quite work. They wind up on two blood pressure medications. Their blood pressure comes down a little bit, but they still have a problem. Maybe they still have a stroke or they still have a heart attack. And nobody says, oh, well, we shouldn't believe in cardiology. Mm. Um, Cardiological medications don't work and you have to try more than one. And why don't we know exactly which one works? And why don't they work 100%? Or the same thing, you know, people take statin medications and they, you know, Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a side effect, you know, so, so famously some statin medications were causing some like muscle pain and some other things and people were lowering the dose. And again, there wasn't this backlash, oh, we shouldn't believe in statin medications or why don't they prevent every heart attack and things like that. So right. you, you're exactly right. We, we know that these medications can have a benefit, that they are different than taking a fake medication, that even if you don't know you're taking a real medication, even if you don't believe it's going to be helpful to you, they still work for many people, yeah. but not everyone. Yeah. And furthermore, it's just a, just like, you know, you got to figure out what blood pressure medication agrees with you. You have to figure out what psychiatric medication agrees with you. And it's a bit of a trial and error process yeah. of finding the right medication, the right dose, because we're not there yet. We haven't developed all of the tools we need to truly personalize out of the gate. You know, we don't have genetic testing. We don't have brain scanning that can say, oh, this is the medication for you. So I think being open-minded about medication means being open-minded about the process of figuring it out and, you know, collaborating with your doctor to talk about why this medication, what are the potential ups and downs? How will we know if it's working? What if it doesn't work? What are the, you know, yeah. what might we try next, et cetera? So, right. well, so that it, was the first point. Go ahead. Well, I want to just jump in. I, I, I know there's more yeah. you want to get to, but, but speaking of genetic testing, and I didn't, I didn't remember to, to bring this up um, or to f- find this, but there, I did take a genetic test. This, my provider did pr- give me a genetic, like a, a you know, mouth, a, a cheek swab. And then it, I, you may be familiar with this. I know it's nascent. It's not a, it's not a highly developed thing, but it, it at least tells you based on your genetic profile and they're building a, a more expansive library. So I think every month, every year, it's getting more intelligent, but yeah. they tell you these are going to cause really negative reactions. Stay away from this class. So I have strong feelings on this one. So with my esteemed supervisor, Dr. Ron Winchell, I I helped host uh, American Psychiatric Association debate about Mm. the clinical utility of genetic testing in psychiatry and trying to remember who the panelists were. But I think one actually was an advisor to GeneSight, which is one of the, the company. I think it might've been that, GeneSight. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So, and I, full disclosure, I've actually done some genetic testing and on some of my patients and I'll explain sure. some of my thinking. Um, so there are really two categories of information that come out from genetic testing. One has to do with the metabolism of drugs and that's looking at the, these um, proteins in the liver that help break down the drugs. And uh, people have a, a variety of these things. You know, one, one person can have um, fast metabolism, another person can have partially slow metabolism, et cetera. And there is some evidence there, actually, that knowing the metabolic profile um, or the, 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 the genes related to metabolism can help people uh, select starting doses of medications um, and can also help help us understand why some people might be having side effects. But a, a somewhat reasonable alternative to that 
is actually just starting at low doses of medications, going slowly and being open-minded about the potential for side effects or effectiveness at low doses. But nonetheless, I think getting genetic information about metabolism, um, and there are some international guidelines uh, that aren't too popular, but you can find them that say, oh, if you have this combination of metabolic genes, then you want to start this drug at this dose instead of the recommended yeah. certain dose, for example. I'll, so do, that's, I'll, that's I'll just say, Joel, like, I, I think that for me, like the fact that this doctor was willing to do it with me, even if it's marginal benefit, like on the science end, like somehow it relieved, maybe it was placebo effect, but it relieved my sense of anxiety about yeah. taking medication. It was like, oh, I'm not going to be taking like, yeah. Chlor- Clorox, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what kind of anxiety, you know, I don't know what I would be afraid of, but I think people have this fear and I definitely have this fear. Like, what are you giving me? What the heck is this medicine? So you raise a great point. I do think that a lot of doctors, a lot of clients come into the practice sort of wanting this done. And then I think I will now share with you what I think is the potential danger of doing it, but I think in the right hands can be reasonably done. And that is this other set of genetic testing that has to do with things like the receptor in the, uh, on nerve cells that, uh, you know, the uh, medications bind to and things like that. And so you're, you were correctly pointing out like this, this, uh, our knowledge about this is growing all the time, but sometimes these tests make clear recommendations about this drug will work and this drug won't work. And they maybe even color code red, red, yellow, green. I think this is often those things are based on like 30 women in one study in Japan had this response in depression. Wow. And like that will be the basis for that recommendation. Yeah. Right. And so then a patient comes in and says, well, I can't take, Zoloft because it's in the red, even though Zoloft is an extremely popular, effective, well-tolerated medication that actually has just as good a chance of working for this individual as something else. And so that that's the challenge that I face as a prescriber is, you know, how you blend a personalizing recommendation with, you know, some, some weak evidence based. And, you know, they'll say, oh, you should take this third line medication. And I'll say, look, we, we really don't want to start here. You know, the best thing is still. So that's the challenge, I think, is balancing like what useful genetic information about metabolism come out to guide selection and dosing versus what sort of um, overly interpreted data about the serotonin transporter is presented that can like lead people astray. And this was the lesson for me, Joel. I'll just say it really bluntly, like trust your doctor. Like there's a certain point, like, especially as a provider myself, um, like, you know, I think people like me who are, who are, or let's just say self-driven or leadership oriented people, they tend to think that they can find the answer themselves. It's like, you know, part of this, the cluster of symptoms that, or the causes in my life that led me and led my brain to be conserving energy, right? That's what depression is in the, in the brain, right? It's just, it's the brain going on conservation mode. Um, Part of the behaviors and thought processes that led to this are the same things I was trying to do in my way, in my attempts to get out of depression. Oh, I've got the answer. Oh, I'll, I'll do the research for my endocrinologist. I'll bring that research in and tell the endocrinologist what I have. Holy, you know, like, okay. At a certain point I needed to just like realize my medicine here is to actually relax and let other people tell me what the answers are sometimes and trust your doctor. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's a balancing act, exactly, because I do really value, you know, my, my clients are the experts on themselves. Right. And I really value, you know, I need to know what they think, what they feel, what they're interested in. Um, I want to know what they've Googled, what they mm-hmm. are think looks like it might work for them, what they're really afraid to try. Um, and I keep coming back to this word collaboration. And, and that's really what I as a provider want to have with my patients, which right. means I don't think they should sit there and just do what I say. Um, but nor is it sometimes it's not so helpful if they come in with the printout and say, this is it. Right. And, you know, often in those situations, that that might be a reasonable place to start. I'm certainly not going to dismiss someone who comes in with a strong idea about what they want to try as long as it's also in my mind reasonable. You right. know, like if right. I'm going to lose my license for prescribing it, that might not be <laughs> the place for it to start. But, um, you know, as a way of sort of developing a rapport, um, and valuing a patient's input and trusting their own gut about what might be helpful, that's certainly a good place. But sooner or later, we want to come into a conversation and start figuring it out together and right. you know, exploring together what are all the things that are going to work for this person at this time. It should be a collaboration, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be aware of our time and, and, and kind of sure. jump, jump to a couple of things here. I mean, one that we I referenced earlier here is this idea that that people, I don't know what the rates are statistically, but people are self-treating, right? Like um, as much as people think that they uh, do not have an, an issue, a mental health issue, but then they're going to the bar every day or every other day, or their alcohol consumption is spiked during COVID. We know that that is, is, is actually happening um, out there. And, and obviously people using marijuana or other, other uh, self-medicating types of things, um, how do we differentiate, you know, I, I had some questions for you about how SSRIs work versus SNRIs, selective mm-hmm. norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors versus selective serotonin uptake re-inhibitors, re, uh, inhibitors. Um, but I want to jump right to the, and we, could, we, we can talk about that a little bit, but the difference between sure. like somebody saying, well, you know, I just need a glass of wine or maybe three <laughs> every day. Versus like, oh, well, maybe you, you should consider like you have an anxiety disorder that you're treating with a depressant <laughs> alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a tough one. So, okay. All right. <laughs> I can't help but address, I hope briefly, two other questions. So the first one yes. was going back to how often do you see oh, yeah. your provider? Yeah. Oh, I can't help but speak to this one really quickly. Yeah. And that is... Um, it, the American healthcare system is is tricky, and you know a lot of psychiatrists, because of the reimbursement rates that that they're paid, um, don't accept insurance. Um, and then clinics or other places that do accept insurance might have a lot of patients. Uh, exactly to your point. So I think that individuals' experiences are going to be highly variable in the amount of attention they get. And some people really are going to get 15 minutes every few weeks, and other people are going to get 45 minutes once a week. Um, and so. I would say, you know, just like we want to develop a personalized solution, you know, approach for medication and psychotherapy, we also just, I encourage people to try to find a circumstance that that works for them. And sometimes, you know, family practitioners and primary care doctors are familiar with these medications, have availability and do a fantastic job. And that might be a good solution for a lot of people. Other times there might be clinics that are just community clinics that really work well. And then finally, if you you have the resources, if you have the insurance, you know, private practice psychiatrists um, can also be a bit more flexible and offer you 
time and, and, and the frequency of meetings that are work for you. But usually I would say, you know, 45 to 90 minutes for an intake and then meeting every couple, you know, every two to four weeks as you start a medication or at least checking in on the phone or doing some other things to make sure it's going right. So right. I hope that helps. That's great. Yep. Yeah. And even and then, nurse practitioners might, might be the person oh, doing yeah. the checking in in between appointments. And that is so critical to say, oh, you know, this medication is causing me to not sleep. Like that was my experience. Se- severe sleep disruption on an SSRI. And then it yeah. had to be corrected or actually augmented with mirtazapine, which is uh, Remeron. And, yeah. you know, we won't have time to get into that, the nickname for that California rocket fuel, <laughs> which, which is not the combination that I'm taking. It's not a, not a high enough dose to have that sort of effect, which I think is referring to the rocket fuel, right? You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. Which is, I think that they were referring to treatment-resistant depression, which I don't, I did not have that, but thankfully, but, um, you know, so anyway, yeah, I know where there's a bunch of questions out there. Yeah, I think that term was dubbed, I think that combination of Effexor, Venlafaxine, and um, Remeron, Mirtazapine, at full doses um, was dubbed by Stephen Stahl, who's this, I saw once referred to as a celebrity psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> and he has, he has a lot of, he, he has a very popular book on how to use psychiatric medications and also how he thinks they work. And it was used in this really big community study called STAR-D. I think that was one of the like second or third line treatment options and it showed some, some benefits. So yeah, people have thought for its effectiveness and also for the diverse ways that it affects brain functioning have dubbed it uh, California rocket fuel. So that's that's yeah. a good one. But okay, so I'll leave I'll leave SSRI versus SNRI alone, and I'll get into the issue of like our coping strategies, whether it's substance use or something else. And you know, again, it's for me, it's on the spectrum. And so for someone who has a few glasses of wine a night, um, I I might ask them how that's working for them. And I might ask them, you know, when's the last time they saw their doctor and had their liver functioning checked or, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was causing trouble. Um, You know, people often think alcohol helps with sleep. We know it helps people fall asleep, but as you metabolize the alcohol, it actually leads to lower quality of sleep, sleep disruption, and makes people feel often tired, hungover the next day. So for people at the extreme end who are having you know, way over any recommended limit or having clear problems that there I might make a firmer recommendation and say, look, this looks like a medical problem. You're causing your liver injury, whatever it is. But for people somewhere in the middle, I might just work with them to say, and how is this working for you? What are the ups? What are the downs? Have you thought about reducing it? What do other people think? And this is a more motivational interviewing style approach of just really understanding the role of alcohol in that person's life. And what I sometimes interpret to that person is like, hey, you've already made the decision that chemicals actually are helpful to you. You know, so alcohol is just another another drug, people call it a drug. So you already made that decision. So why don't we try to evaluate the ups and downs of this way of using a chemical and see if there are potentially other medications or other things, whether it's a nutraceutical over the counter or if it's a prescribed medication and just see, you know, what are the ups and downs of using that? And, um, you know, and try to decide what's helpful 
for this person? What, what's going to work in their life? You know, um, And if the alcohol is causing a lot of trouble with a spouse who thinks they're drinking too much or causing some other problem, Kids, then yeah. maybe, right? Like, you know, you're exactly. Um, then maybe we should be open-minded about other ways of, of coping. With yeah. It's a really nice way to, to present it, Joel. Um, a lot of people, I'm sure I, and I know you're experiencing this too, um, because we've talked about it, like are coming in, our clients are coming in saying, you know, I'm really fine. Um, because, you know, ever since I started smoking weed every day or a couple times a day or whatever, everything, everything seems to be better. And, uh, so I guess, you know, and I want to preview this, that I'm going to dive into this a lot more in depth, uh, to talk about sort of, um, the, the pros and cons from a scientific uh, perspective and, and how it works in the brain long-term, especially in the developing brain with teenagers and young, young people in their 20s. What's your take on you know, when somebody comes in and, and says they're using marijuana? Yeah, I, I wish I had more of a research base to, to make recommendations. I think that's one of the, the limits. You know, The federal regulations that we've placed on marijuana research are really onerous. It's really made it hard. And so there's just not a lot of good research about either CBD or THC and both its, its effectiveness for symptoms and its long-term effects um, on, on adults and, and children. So the first thing I have to tell people is, hey, I wish I knew more about this. Um, I really love to be able to say I've, there's a full body of scientific literature and I've read it and here it is, but th- there's really not very much. So that's the first thing I have to be honest with people about. And then the second thing is there are a few randomized control trials at this point uh, of CBD for anxiety, for example, um, also THC. And, and so far, the, the major finding has been that um, THC consistently makes people feel high, which they like. Um, but it doesn't seem to have a separate impact on mood and anxiety symptoms. So a lot of times what I say to people is, yeah, of course you feel good. THC makes a lot of people feel pretty good. Um, is it a treatment for your mood or anxiety problem? I'm not so sure. Um, and so then I'm, I'm really in the position again of like getting into the weeds with them and saying, how is this working for you in your life? Right. Yeah. Getting into it. There we go. So, and that's, that's where I have to leave it. You know, the good news about THC use is, again, there's not a lot of evidence, but I think in, uh, in, in adults, um, there's not a lot of evidence that it's really bad for you, though I think people don't appreciate that the, you can absolutely become dependent. I work with a lot of people who have frank marijuana withdrawal syndromes, where when they try to stop, they get irritable, they can't sleep, they can't eat can't concentrate this idea that there are no um upper limits to use of marijuana or no addictive qualities and there's a big debate we can talk about but yeah about what addiction is but uh that's not true right there we we do see side effects all drugs have side effects um even good good drugs or you know even things with 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 a good effect profile can have pretty potential side effects yeah yeah. Um, I know we're limited on time a little bit, but I, I want to sure. I want to ask you about um, ADHD and, and kind of talk about children in this cross, um, you know, uh, diagnostic, trans diagnostic um, uh, issue with ADHD, depression. How do people kind of differentiate, differentially diagnose that in themselves and children? Um, the idea of medication for children in general, I, I have a story to tell about that. But um, can you quickly kind of, you know, touch on the idea of, of why um, side effects specifically for SSRIs with, you know, Zoloft, 
um, what are the other SSRIs? Paxil, is that right? Um, Prozac. Sure. Prozac. Um, why is there sleep disruption? I think a lot of people, or some people I've heard, just kind of throw their hands up and say, see, that's just crazy. Like, you're giving me this to help with these symptoms, so I'm okay with that. But you're giving me, like, I'm going to become insomnia, have insomnia because of this. So it, at that point, they're just like, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because um, people have idiosyncratic responses to the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and they go in, in opposite directions. So I actually tell people when I'm discussing the potential side effects of an SRI or SSRI like Zoloft, um, I literally say, you know, some people take this medication and actually feel more awake. Other people take this medication and it makes them feel more tired. And so my first line intervention for that is just to move the medication to the morning if it wakes them up and to the evening if it makes them sleepy. Um, And it's complicated because depression itself can have idiosyncratic effects on sleep. Um, Some people experience increased sleep. Other people um, experience significant sleep disruption, difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. Um, And so occasionally when you successfully treat the depression, the sleep problems caused by the depression get better. Um, But sometimes I think in in one study I looked at, they're they're one of the most common residual symptoms. So sometimes people's mood and energy and other symptoms improve, but they have trouble sleeping. So this is is one of those areas where communicating with your doctor, um, collaborating with your doctor, um, trying to understand in your particular case the sequence of events where you're having trouble sleeping while depressed and it just didn't get better, were you not having trouble sleeping and it actually yeah. is associated with the medication, you know, really trying to figure that out for you can then help you and your doctor decide right. what to do next. Um, and, you know, in the case where it's clearly tied to the medication and moving the timing of the medication doesn't work, that might be a reason to consider an alternative SSRI. In the case where it's a residual symptom of your depression, um, and your depression is otherwise improving, that might be time to consider uh, you know, targeting sleep specifically, whether it's you know, with uh, CBT for insomnia, if, it, if it, there's not good sleep hygiene habits, or if it's considering a sleep aid like, like mirtazapine, Remeron, yeah. you know, another yeah. medication that more reliably tends to make people sleepy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you, and you, you remind me of an important point that that, uh, that I mean, that, all of this, if, if anybody's listening to this and they're just glazing over with like, well, see, that's the reason I'm not going to go see a psychiatrist because all these details, like it just opens up. If you're already struggling with anxiety or, or feeling overwhelmed or intolerant to sort of ver- novelty, um, this opens up a Pandora's box. Like, hello, like you, I'm already struggling with these things. So now all these choice points, but this is what therapists are for. This is what we do in therapy with folks is interact with psychiatrists on behalf of the client, our clients. And oftentimes provide some of these um, kind of backstage, um, behind the scenes uh, kind of shop talk, basically about like, well, what's this and that? And then we can translate it to our clients and say, well, and, and, and just be supportive and encouraging because it often is overwhelming. Like if I go to a cardiologist, uh, there's a person I interviewed who um, had open heart surgery, like, you know, and he was interviewing car- cardiologists to, before he had this surgery. And, you know, one cardiologist said to him, like, well, here's what we're going to do. And he, and he outlined kind of like gave him a PowerPoint on like what actually happens in the surgery. And then the other cardiologist said, listen, I've done this a thousand times. I could do it in my sleep. It's going to be fine. And you're going to be, it's going to be successful. He chose that guy 
who didn't give him any of the details. <laughs> like, so like he wants, you know, sometimes we just need to say and, and hear like, Hey, it's just going to be okay. And just, yeah. So, so I think my personal approach, I try to reflect that because I think one thing that people can do is when there are a lot of choices um, I think some psychiatrists or some doctors in general can kind of lay out those choices and put it back on the patient to decide. And so I try to do a best of both worlds approach in my own practice where I say, hey, you're in a great position. There are actually a lot of things we can try, all of which are likely to help you get better. Um, and I'm happy to talk to you about every last one if you want to. But if I were in your shoes, I'd probably just choose this one. And that way I'm giving them like both the knowledge that there's a lot of options, positive expectancy, because I'm saying really any of them might work, but I'm also giving them a concrete recommendation about what I would choose and why. So that way, you know, if they want to go, oh, okay, that one, then we've got a great place to start, Yeah, you know? And, and so that, that's, that's my personal approach, but I, I really agree with you that, um, you know, psychiatry, uh, in its attempt to be personalized can potentially be overwhelming. And so that's why having a good relationship with your doctor and even just a matter of personal style, like the, the way I go about things might just not be the way that some clients want to go about them. Exactly. And so, you know, in addition to finding a doctor who kind of works in your schedule and sees you the amount that you feel is helpful, you might just also want to talk to people until you find someone you click with because that yeah. positive relationship is even even when it's medication oriented is still yeah. probably one That's of the right. most important aspects of the treatment. That's right. Yeah. And th- and then even that decision point can be overwhelming for people who are struggling in their relationships. There's you know one of the things they're struggling with is like, well they can't really discern <laughs> who's who's my ally and who's my friend. They're making friends with with people that really should be not friends with and all this. So again, that's where therapy and behavioral interventions come in. We can help with that. Um, can you speak about, cause you do treat adolescents. You, I think you treat children um, with, mm-hmm. with psychiatry. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just share this quick story about a family member. Um, a young girl in my family um, had an, an issue with anxiety and the, you know, the, the family was describing this, um, uh, symptom as really like tantrums, like ever since like age two, but the tantrums really lasted like every day and multiple times a day, um, mm-hmm. debilitating kind of tantrums for five more years. Like, so the terrible twos that everybody talks about sort of saying no to everything, uh, inability to tolerate new things, right. Real sensitivity to change, um, difficulty with demands like going to school, brushing teeth, that sort of thing. So that lasted for five years and the family was kind of organized around or disorganized, I should say, around kind of naming this as like, well, just problematic child behavior. And despite like all sorts of interventions, uh, behaviorally, compassionately, um, counseling, family counseling, uh, even sensory types of interventions that are reserved more for kind of less verbal um, people, children. And nothing was working. So after five years, this, you know, this, uh, the, the parents in this family really um, decided, hey, we're going to try psychiatry for our child. They had the child start taking uh, Zoloft in this case. And like, it was like night and day, Joel, within, within like two weeks, they had their little girl back um, to, you know, kind of being responsive and able to tolerate kind of the normal uh, disappointments of every day. Um, so, but I know this family struggled a great deal with their fear that psychiatric medications might somehow harm the developing brain of their daughter, you know, and, 
in this case, they needed results. And so they were able to get, you know, they overcame that fear. Yeah. But how do you handle that with, with kids? Is, are there, are there, do we know much about how it affects the brain of children? I wish we knew more. Um, and I am with people that I tend to take a conservative approach to the use of medication. But the wrinkle on that for me is, you know, going back to this idea that the, the forcefulness of my recommendation is often proportional to the severity of the problem. Um, you know, even that even still applies in childhood. And, um, you know, we do have research to show the benefits of a wide variety of psychiatric medications in children as young as six. Um, and some, um, experience using those medications in children, even before the age of six. And what I try to frame for people is, um, Prozac, for example, which I think is the prototypical serotonin reuptake inhibitor, has been around uh, almost 40, 40 years now. And many people started it in the 80s as younger folks and have been on it to, for successfully f- for decades. Um, and of course, we don't have these, we don't have a 40 year study, but the FDA does this post marketing surveillance where after a drug is approved, you know, you still report adverse events related to it. Um, and so my hope, my, my belief is that if there were some really clear developmental problems that emerged because of these medications, my hope is that we would have detected them by now. Um, but it's yeah. a bit complicated because the kids who needed those medications in childhood are also the kids who are, are a bit at risk of having problems in adulthood. Um, so that's one thought I have is I try to reassure people that um, it, it's, I, I think any serious and obvious negative developmental consequences, my belief is that they would have been apparent at this time. Yep. So that's one thing yep. I say. The other thing I say is, well, what are the developmental consequences of um, multiple daily tantrums? Exactly. And how does that affect someone's self-concept, self-worth? How does that affect someone's ability to um, you know, develop relationships, engage in school, um, manage stressors? You know? And so I, I try to note that that, behavior um, has significant uh, significant psychological impact. And more than that, um, I don't know what the, the impact is on the brain. I don't know if being so depressed or so irritable or so inattentive or whatever it is doesn't have its, its own. Well, certainly presents learning difficulties, certainly presents yeah. relationship difficulties. And as you pointed out, the, the self-identity, like people basically um, writing that person off, or in this case, a child, as as irritable, grumpy, mean, um, you know, and that wasn't happening, thankfully, in this, in this particular family's case, Um, you know, but it was certainly breaking down the family functioning. And, you know, if the family breaks down, then clearly you have more tragic things unfolding than dealing with potential of, well, should I take medication or not? Like the tragedy is already unfolding. It's out of the gate. So why not, why not get results? So again, back to sort of my mantra here. Um, is there, we'll end on this note, um, because you've done research and, and, and have familiarity with ADHD, um, as a lot of people know, that's a diagnosis that when I was a kid, I don't think that was around, right, Joel? Like when I was, you know, in the, in the 80s, I don't think ADHD was really being, you know, maybe it was starting to be, but it's now like a first line sort of intervention for a lot of child psychologists. Um, yeah. So can you tell the difference between a child that, has this gets back to our trans diagnostic sort of question 
you know, how do we rule out the, you know, severe anxiety disorder or moderate anxiety disorder, which interferes with attention versus ADHD? Because the drugs are very different. Yeah. So that's, I think, the benefit of, of going to an experienced clinician who works with children. And whether that's like a, a, a pediatrician who has experience in this area or a developmental pediatrician, clinical psychiatrist, uh, clinical child psychiatrist, child psychologist, um, this is an area where I think uh, a, a full evaluation by a knowledgeable clinician is the best thing that we've got. And so how, how do you do it? Well, you, you systematically interview the parents, you collect a family history, you interview the children. Um, sometimes you might obtain information from teachers. You might have them fill out various forms. You can have parents fill out questionnaires as well. And so you go into it thinking exactly what you were thinking, that in children, um, difficulties paying attention could be the result of a problem with mood. It could be the result of a problem with anxiety. It could be the result of autism spectrum type um, problems. It could be any number of things. It could be a and hearing so you, problem, right? You, you exactly. Never know. Yeah. You know, and so the good news there is, I think, is that, you know, schools have gotten really good at doing hearing and vision testing. But you're exactly right, especially earlier in life, you know, before age four or so, we definitely think about physical impediments that could be getting in people's way, like marginal hearing, vision difficulties difficulties, um, et cetera. So you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, your goal is just to be as thoughtful and systematic as possible. And uh, comorbidity, you know, having more than one condition is definitely more common than not. And so a lot of kids might both have ADHD and anxiety, ADHD and a mood problem. And so then um, an experienced clinician is, is useful in sort of helping establish a treatment priority. What is the bigger issue? What needs to be treated first? How should it be addressed? And developing a, a treatment plan over time that ultimately addresses all the challenges, but sort of has a starting point and a process. Um, and interestingly, you know, you, you raised the point different medications. Um, there is one study that looked at kids with both anxiety and ADHD, at least one study coming to my mind, and stimulant medications actually helped with both. Oh. So yeah, um, and this was a study comparing a non-stimulant ADHD medication to a stimulant ADHD medication. Everybody get le less anxious, but this non-stimulant medication, um, atomoxetine, brand Stratera, helped people get a little even more less anxious. Um, so it's curious, the stimulant medications, people anticipate a lot of potential negative side effects. For many kids, they actually can improve frustration tolerance, reduce anxiety, and then improve core symptoms of ADHD, like attention and hyperactivity. Right. Um, so they, they are useful medications. Um, and yeah, definitely worth considering, even when kids might have more than one issue going on. Yeah. Well, really great information. I hope people find this. I, I think we, we packed a lot of information in here. And, and, and I'll just sort of end on this note that you know, we've been talking about the whole time that people like um, will benefit from paying more attention to themselves and, 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 and involving experts to help them pay attention to things that are happening at the physiological levels in their bodies and in their minds. Yeah. I, had, I had a, you know, somebody say to me recently, you know, we have this saying that we say we have a body, you know, or we think of our body as somehow separate, but actually we are embodied. You know, our, our mind is a function of our body. You can't take the mind out of the entire body, uh, you know, so unless you're in a sci-fi movie with Keanu Reeves or something, but you know, that's, a, that's, that's another topic for, for discussion for, for another episode. But um, 
thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate your work that you're doing and, uh, and, and just spending the time here today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.